Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout. Because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. My name is Lex Greensill. Thank you for the opportunity to participate in this important hearing to answer your questions. Finally, last week, we heard from the man himself, the man at the heart of a scandal. Please understand that I bear complete responsibility for the collapse of Greensville Capital. For weeks now, we've been following the story of how financier Lex Greensill worked himself into the heart of David Cameron's Downing Street and how, after he left to head his own financial firm, he took Cameron on as an advisor. But there's a third figure in this affair. Sanjeev Gupta and Lex Greensill joined at the hip, and Sanjeev's rise mirrors that of Greensill's. The one element of the story we've not yet explored is why exactly Greensill capital collapsed and how a business relationship with a metal magnet precipitated its downfall. I've become increasingly convinced that this, when all is said and done and when the post-mortem is held, this will be one of the biggest industrial scandals of our time. A metal magnet whose company the Serious Fraud Office announced on Friday that it is now investigating. You're listening to Stories of Our Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, Cameron and the Toxic Banker Part 4, Sanjeev Gupta, Man of Steel. This is the story of an industrial scandal that led to a financial scandal which became a political scandal. Last week, both Lex Greensill, the eponymous boss of a financial firm, and former PM David Cameron appeared in front of the Treasury Select Committee to answer questions about why Cameron had been texting former colleagues in government asking for favours on behalf of the firm. And why, despite this frantic lobbying, Greensill's company had collapsed. In the earlier episodes of this series, we explored Lex Greensill's entry into number 10, detailing how he tried to bring a scheme called supply chain finance to government payments. So far, however, we haven't touched on what led to Greensill's financial collapse and Cameron's desperate pleas for help.
I'm John Collingridge. I'm the Deputy Business Editor at the Sunday Times. I've been at the paper since 2013. John, on Stories About Times, we've been following the Greensill scandal very closely. And today, we're going to hear about the chap who's at the very heart of Greensill Capital's downfall, Sanjeev Gupta. So can you tell me about how you first heard about Sanjeev Gupta? It was around about early 2016 or late 2015. The context for it was that the UK steel industry was in deep crisis. The crash of UK steel. And now the race to rescue an industry under fire. Tata, the Indian-owned steel giant, which owned the bulk of the British steel industry, was in deep trouble with the UK and basically putting it up for sale. And out of the woodwork emerged a load of people who thought they could rescue the steel industry. Pressure is building on a deal to find a white knight. And here's the man who reckons he fits the bill. I will not undertake any project in the UK, including Port Talbot, which would require us to make people redundant. Sanjeev Gupta was one of those. It's not an unexpected situation, it's just the timing is unexpected. I, the writing was on the wall and this was headed towards this direction. I've been waiting to, so that we can play a role in transforming this. He was very interested in one specific site, Port Talbot in South Wales, which is one of the biggest sites. It's a, an integrated steelworks, which means that it can turn iron ore and coking coal into steel. And his name had come up around that as one of the people who'd really like to buy it. I'd never heard of him before. I was intrigued. Why would somebody who was new to me, who, was, who looks like he wasn't an established player in the global steel industry, why did he think he could succeed where the likes of Tata, which is an enormous conglomerate, why did he think he could win where Tata failed? Sanjeev Gupta, this virtual unknown, was stepping in to save one of Britain's last remaining and endangered steel mills. So, in the eyes of politicians, he was helping save a symbolic vestige of Britain's industrial strength in a region desperate to keep those jobs. He was a hero. A few years on from Gupta's purchase at the Port Talbot plant, John met him at an industry dinner. So every year, the engineering trade body, it was called the EEF, it's now known as Make UK, it holds a dinner where it gets together some of the great and good from British industry, manufacturers, car makers, steel makers. And I was sitting next to, I was put on a table next to Sanjeev Gupta, and I'd seen a little bit of the coverage about him, and I was just intrigued. Who is this guy? I'd had a little bit of an introduction to him by asking around, and I got to meet him for the first time, and he struck me as a a charming, fast-talking guy. I don't really remember very much about the conversation. He was very generous with his offer. He said, come and meet me at my office. I'll talk to you about my plan. I'll talk to you about green steel, which was his plan to make the UK steel industry green. I took him up on his offer and went to his um, office in Mayfair in May of 2016. I walked away from that meeting and I just was not convinced. I couldn't quite work out how on earth he was going to make this thing work where others had failed. But afterwards, the PR sent me a PDF, an article that Sanjeev had written, an editorial about how green steel was the future for the UK steel industry. It was a luxurious setting in a Mayfair townhouse, white walls, fine art on the wall. And I still didn't really have a clue about how this guy was going to make it work. He had the talk, but could he walk the walk? Gupta's big idea involves some major changes to the normal steelmaking process. Through our Task Force CN30, we will leave the industry to a carbon neutral future. 
by using our Green Street strategy, which focuses on renewable energy and electric arc furnaces to recycle steel scrap. You would create a lovely virtuous circle of renewable energy in, scrap metal in, and green steel out the other end. But renewables typically rely on very heavy doses of state subsidy. And the scrap metal market as well is quite a competitive one. It's a global market where prices fluctuate. You then subsequently wrote what might be regarded as disobliging articles about him. And this led to another encounter with somebody from Gupta's company, this time at the Sunday Times Business Christmas Party. What happened? We'd invited Sanjeev Gupta to the party, which is our annual event. Sunday Times Business Desk had been running for about 50 years, and we, we hold it every year at Claridge's in Mayfair. We invite along um, some, of the, some of the biggest names in, in British business. And I'd invited Sanjeev Gupta because he'd been in the news a hell of a lot. He'd tried unsuccessfully to buy some bits from Tata. And I thought, well, let's have him along and see how he behaves in a, in a setting with his peers. He didn't turn up, sadly, but in his stead, he sent Jay Hambro, who is now his chief investment officer. And I recall saying hello to Jay, and I was sort of in a corner of the room. And Jay's a big, overbearing guy, part of the Hambro banking dynasty. And I'd just written this article a few months earlier, which asked a lot of questions and, and looked a lot into the background of Sanjeev. And I remember Jay coming up to me and going, you want to watch your back. People said we should sue the bleep out of you. We're not going to, but... And it was quite incredible because, you know, here we are hosting this party. We'd invited this guy here to come and drink our warm white wine. He sends his um, second-in-command and he's effectively threatening me. I can't quite remember what I said. It would have probably been something like, well, what have I done wrong and what, what's wrong in what I wrote? But I don't think I'd ever had an experience quite like that before where rather than answer the questions or do their best to inform me about what was so right about their business and how they were going to do things so differently and how I was just so ill-informed as a journalist to get these things so wrong that instead he came up to me and threatened to sue me. So for me, that was a cue to keep looking. And keep looking, he did. But teasing out the full Sanjeev Gupta backstory wasn't easy. We had a pretty carefully crafted view that had been given to us of Sanjeev Gupta. It focused on his sort of meteoric rise, how he'd started off as a trader in the dorms at Cambridge University, got kicked out of the halls of residence for trading using the halls of residence telephone, things like that. But there were certainly a few gaps in that story as to how he got from there to being in a position where he, he felt he could buy one of the biggest steel facilities in the UK. He was kicked out of the hall of residence for using the place as a place of business. Yeah, precisely. So, I mean, it, you got the impression that here was somebody who could take risks, who had an entrepreneurial streak from a very early age. We were given a little bit of information about his family. So they came from Ludhiana in India, and his dad was an industrialist there. He made bicycles, his father, and Sanjeev had spent some time working in the family business selling bicycles. But beyond that, we really didn't have much of a view who this guy was. There was very little sort of third-party validation. Other people who knew this guy, who could vouch for him, who could tell us where he'd been, what he'd done, what his track record was in business. He really was a bit of an enigma. And yet people were writing what seemed to be quite complimentary pieces about him. I read all of these articles 
And I was just skeptical. I couldn't quite work out for me or satisfy myself about who this guy was and where he'd come from and what his pedigree was. There was one article or actually one documentary which really stood out for me. 2016. The British steel industry is in crisis. It was done by the BBC in 2017 and it was called Sanjeev Gupta, Man of Steel. I'm BBC Wales business correspondent Brian Meakin. Throughout this last turbulent year, I've had exclusive access to Sanjeev Gupta. It was a rather uncritical view of Sanjeev and his aspirations. It focused a lot on his wealth. And for me, that just flashed a lot of red lights. So you're looking at this documentary and other things about it, and you're thinking, yeah, okay, so the guy's rich, but it doesn't tell you whether or not actually he's a good business operator. Steel is a globally competitive industry. Over the last few decades, the Chinese have basically cornered the market. So for anyone to make steel work in a Western market where you've got high costs, you've got tired facilities, you really need to be an expert at this. You need to have a track record and you need to be doing something which has been sort of proven to work elsewhere, but can make the economics work crucially. I wasn't convinced at all that Sanjeev had the wherewithal to do all of this or that he had the resources, because that's a crucial bit. I mean, steel facilities absorb a lot of money. When the steel price is against you and you've got all these fixed costs, you know, thousands of workers, millions of tonnes of coal arriving, energy contracts which you have to meet, you can lose a hell of a lot of money very, very quickly. And that's what Tata had experienced. So I wanted to be convinced that any of these people who thought they could turn around the rump of British steel in the UK could make it work and could make it work sustainably. Because what's key here is that a lot of people, a lot of jobs, a lot of communities like South Wales, the communities surrounding Port Talbot, they all depend on these people who come in and offer promises. Let's go back to Gupta's business and what he does. He steps in, he does his trading from university, he goes and works with his father's business back in India. Do we know what he does between then and going for the remnant of the steel industry? No, we know really very little. He established a company, Liberty Commodities, which traded commodities, steel, agricultural goods. But he certainly wasn't a well-known name on the business scene. He didn't have much of a pedigree in steel making. His brothers, interestingly, were involved and still are involved in steel making in Nigeria. But Sanjeev has insisted repeatedly that he has no part to play in his brother's businesses and that some people suggest that he's estranged from his businesses. But in 2013, he bought a steelworks in Newport in South Wales. And that steelworks is still going. Interestingly, it's not producing very much steel, from what I hear. But for all the criticism of Sanjeev Gupta, and there has been a hell of a lot, one of the things that you can say in his favour is that he does sustain jobs. The Newport deal was just the first deal in what would turn out to be an archipelago of deals. A factory here, a mill there, a plant somewhere else. Sanjeev Gupta's modus operandi is to buy up distressed industrial assets, typically steel, which are unloved, probably aren't making very much money at all, or in fact are heavily loss-making, and then putting them all together under one big umbrella group known as the GFG Alliance, the Gupta Family Group Alliance. And they have various names, but that's exactly what it is at the heart, buying up unloved, distressed assets 
And the unifying point about those assets is in they're in areas where there have been a hell of a lot of job losses and where you have governments and politicians who are desperate not to see more job losses in those tired industries. And so will do anything, almost anything they can to keep those jobs there, to keep those people employed, to not see heavy redundancies. So a large part of the economics of these plants is what governments are prepared to offer by way of subsidies and other inducements for the business to continue operating. Often businesses like these, if you were to see them in the clear, cold light of day, they would be heavy loss-making. They would be pretty much unsustainable without the underpinnings of either very generous contracts, which would probably um, not be in line with the market, or without heavy subsidy or support from governments or without support from the seller of those businesses, which is so keen to pass those businesses on that it will leave a lot of assets on the books so that the new owner can keep it going for a little bit longer. Okay, so there's a pattern there. And is he buying these things up just in this country, or are there a lot of operations abroad he's buying too? This is another fascinating aspect of Sanjeev Gupta's ambition, which is that he has gone around the world buying tired industrial assets. We go to Scotland. He bought an aluminium smelter and hydroelectric plants from Rio Tinta, the mining giant. He bought another aluminium smelter in France, in Dunkirk, again from Rio Tinto. He bought a huge steelworks in Australia, which had gone bust. The Wyala Steelworks, where a whole town relies on that steelworks. In fact, a whole region relies on it. He bought a string of plants from ArcelorMittal, this European steel giant, bought seven plants across Europe. He bought steelworks in America. I mean, his global reach in just five years has been quite incredible. I've never seen somebody do as many deals, as many big deals in such a short space of time, and particularly in such a distressed sector. Now, as far as you can tell, as of fairly recently, how many jobs in the UK were dependent in some way upon Gupta's operations? About 5,000 are dependent on his operations, of which about 3,000 are steel jobs or metal jobs. And they're in places like Rotherham in South Yorkshire. He's also got a, another big facility near Sheffield. He's got facilities in South Wales, Newport. If you don't mind me saying so, it sounds more like what a collector does than a business operator. It has appeared a little bit like that. You know, Sanjeev would buy a steelworks, he would do the media, he would do it to great fanfare, he would make great promises about what he was going to do with those businesses. There would be a hell of a lot of press, and then he would move on to the next deal. And it was almost, for a period, it was really hard to keep up with where Sanjeev Gupta was going to do his next deal. And in fact, there were a rash of stories at the time. You know, there were journalists racing to get the next Sanjeev scoop. Where was Sanjeev going to do his next deal? I watched that and I sat back from it a little bit and I thought, let's question why he's doing these deals. What do you get when you create something as big as this? And what are the risks inherent in all of this? I increasingly came with the view that he wants to create a business that is too big to fail and that governments are so dependent on that they won't pull the plug on and that they'll support. Just putting together a lot of distressed assets doesn't make a business strategy. You can buy all the distressed steel mills in the world, but you still come up against the inviolable fact that China is the world's biggest steel producer and produces steel a hell of a lot cheaper than you're going to be able to in an expensive market like the UK. So all these businesses, which 
successful multinationals had failed to turn around, they were all being assembled under this umbrella of the GFG alliance. But all we had from Sanjeev's point of view to explain how this would work was a strategy that he dubbed Green Steel. In other words, you didn't think he could turn any kind of significant profit out of the Green Steel concept. You want to believe that these things can work. You want to believe that there's somebody who he does what he says on the tin, that can knit together green energy. You know, green energy is the future. We all know that we need to clean up our energy production. Who can knit together green energy and save jobs in really tough parts of the country. You want to believe that that can work. But if the likes of Tata and Arcelor couldn't make that work, I didn't see why he could make it work. Coming up, we start to delve into the Byzantine financial arrangements that Gupta was employing. But first, a message from a colleague. Hello, Louise Callahan here, Middle East correspondent for the Sunday Times. Thanks for listening. Every week, people like you make it possible for me to cover developments across this ever-changing region. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. This is where we get to the next part of the story. How Gupta funded a business that essentially couldn't turn a profit. And this is where we also get to his relationship with Greensill and Greensill Capital. Now, in a previous podcast, we learned about supply chain finance and how Lex Greensill used it to make his name. Is that how Gupta was getting his money? In other words, Greensill was financing Gupta effectively. And how did that work? Sanjeev Gupta has many sources of finance, but probably the biggest and the most controversial is Lex Greensill, um, the Australian son of watermelon farmers who became a banker, who set up the eponymous supply chain finance business, which has now crashed into insolvency. 
If you want to learn more about Lex Greensill and how his firm's collapse has raised questions about the actions of a former Prime Minister and the probity of the civil service, you can listen to parts one, two and three of this series. Sanjeev Gupta and Lex Greensill joined at the hip and Sanjeev's rise mirrors that of Greensill's. What Greensill would do was provide finance against IOUs or invoices that were owed to Sanjeev Gupta. Now, John, my understanding of supply chain finance was that it was really supposed to speed up the payment to somebody for work they had done, quite often for somebody like government who was slow in payment, by being the kind of middle person. In other words, you'd pay them immediately, and then when the people who were supposed to pay them paid you you took a cut from that. I don't understand how that's got anything to do with a business like Gupta's. Supply chain finance with Sanjeev Gupta could be a perfectly legitimate and perfectly normal way to run a business, in in all fairness to him. For somebody like Sanjeev, let's take he's got a big steelworks in Newport, as we've discussed. That steelworks will sell steel to, I don't know, a car maker or digger maker. The company will take receipt of that steel. And typically, that buyer would pay for that steel in weeks or sometimes even months. You know, 90-day payment terms are not unknown in this industry. And it's a bit of a scourge of modern business that suppliers don't get paid until weeks or even months later. So if you're Sanjeev Gupta and you've got a steelworks which consumes a hell of a lot of money, has to pay bills, has to pay staff, has to pay energy costs, it's very helpful to you to get that money for that steel up front. And this is where Lex Greensill comes in. He inserts himself into that relationship between the customer and Sanjeev Gupta, and he would finance the payment for that steal, giving Sanjeev Gupta the money up front. But there are so many questions around how that financing was actually employed, questions that we've managed to get to the bottom of, which tell you that it was not a normal use of supply chain finance. John, this could have been a perfectly straightforward arrangement, beneficial to both sides, as you said. But something else was happening there in this arrangement, wasn't it? In classic supply chain financing, as I understand it, and in you know any logic would tell you that the customer should ultimately pay the financer rather than pay it back to the place where they bought the steel from in the first place. Because Sanjeev Gupta, in getting financing from Lex Greensill, has sold that invoice he has passed on that liability to Lex Greensill. Lex Greensill and Lex Greensill's investors are now responsible for picking up that IOU, for getting that customer to honour that bill. It doesn't rest with Sanjeev. That problem now rests on Lex Greensill's shoulders. But in this very strange relationship, the IOUs, the bills, after 90 days, were paid to Sanjeev Gupta, and it was then for Sanjeev Gupta to pay that money to Greensill. So there was a weird construct which was created from the outset, which for me never really made much sense. So there's the strangeness of aspects of the relationship with Greensill, but then there's also what you describe as the circular cash flows now impacts upon that. When I came across this relatively recently, I was staggered. I'd never heard of anything quite like this, and quite a lot of my contacts were also open-mouthed when they heard this. What we discovered 
via documents which we've seen in some companies' house disclosures are that Sanjeev Gupta would sell steel to a company which has historic close links, is run by somebody who's closely related to Sanjeev Gupta. They're known internally in the GFG Alliance as Friends of Sanjeev. This was a company called VS International. That company would allegedly or ostensibly receive the steel, although we're not actually sure that steel ever changed hands, and Lex Greensill would provide an invoice against that. So you have steel sold to third party who is closely related to Sanjeev Gupta, cash created by Greensill, which goes into Sanjeev Gupta's bank account. He has that cash up front from the payment of steel. What we discovered was that then VS International, this friend of Sanjeev, would then sell that steel very, very soon after to a company owned by Sanjeev Gupta, which would then sell that steel back to Liberty Steel Newport. That is incredible if you think about it. John, we should probably say there might be perfectly good reasons why Gupta would buy his steel back. For example, if prices are rising and he wanted to make a greater profit off the sale, so he buys back low and sells again high, or to restrict supply in the market to keep prices up. But that's not really what you were interested in. What we understand is that no steel even needs to move hands in that situation. And in fact, if you're just selling steel to yourself, why would you move the steel? Why would you go with the expense of hiring a lorry, load up that lorry, move it from supplier to customer? So the effect of the trade is that it allowed Lex Greensill to create cash against the invoice for the steel purchase. But if Gupta was just buying the steel back, that raises the question as to whether it's even necessary to make steel in the first place. I mean, if you extend this to its natural conclusion, you could do this myriad times with different commodities. You could sell coal ultimately back to yourself and you could create an invoice against that. The friend of Sanjeev could create an invoice which they, they say, I'm going to pay you in 90 days. Lex Greensill's going to pay you up front. You've got instant cash. Hey, presto. So Gupta borrows on the basis of a steel trade that he immediately reverses. And Greensill also borrows on the basis that he's got the business from Gupta. So both are, to a substantial extent, borrowing money against something that, in effect, ends up not having happened. So we don't know for definite that that didn't happen, but you have to question. I, I always look at these stories and I say, what would a right-minded person do? Because you, you're sort of in the middle of the night when you're working on stories like this, you wake up with a cold fear running down your back and you think, have I got something wrong? Am I, am I just completely wrong about this? You think, what would a normal person do in this situation? What would a normal business relationship be? The GFG defence on all of this is, and they obviously always refute any suggestion of wrongdoing, is that sometimes Sanjeev Gupta and his businesses find it necessary to buy back products that they have sold. Oh, it's fine. You know, why, why shouldn't we do that? It's perfectly within the rules. These deals weren't the only startling thing to emerge from investigations into Gupta's companies and Greensill Capital. Another really interesting aspect about these invoices is the provenance of those invoices. A few months ago, the Financial Times had a really intriguing story, which was something which I'd been digging into but had never managed to quite bottom out, which was that some of these invoices were from companies which had never traded with Sanjeev Gupta. So Lex Greensill was providing cash against invoices which the purchaser of that steel, or the alleged purchaser of that steel, had no intention of ever buying that steel. They tracked down a few German companies, which, according to Sanjeev Gupta's books, 
or the books they'd discovered, had agreed to buy steel from Sanjeev Gupta and against which Lex Greensill had lent money via invoice discounting. And yet, when they called up these businesses and asked them, have you ever traded with Sanjeev Gupta? They said, no, we've no intention of trading with Sanjeev Gupta. We've never traded with Sanjeev Gupta. We don't know what you're referring to. And yet, they could prove that Sanjeev Gupta had raised substantial amounts of money against invoices, which on, to all extents and purposes were fictional. It's important to say here we're relying on the Financial Times reporting of this story. GFG Alliance denied any wrongdoing, and Sanjeev Gupta wrote to the Financial Times to say the invoices were created by Greensill Capital and not Gupta's GFG Alliance. But whatever, in effect, these were only ever prospective trades for deals that were never done. This leads us to another really intriguing aspect of the way Sanjeev Gupta and Lex Greensill worked, which was that Greensill would finance what Sanjeev Gupta called forward receivables. A forward receivable is quite an esoteric concept. This is basically money lent against a prospective future sale. So this is Sanjeev Gupta saying that in a year's time, two years time, three years time, I will sell steel from my steelworks. Here's who I think will buy this steel. He's created a hypothetical trade, and against that hypothetical trade, Lex Greensill will lend money. Why is that not what a conventional bank loan is for? That's a very good question, because it sounds very much like an unsecured loan. And, and that's what a lot of the commentators who've looked at all of this have said, which is, it looks like debt, it smells like debt, surely that's what it is. No, in Sanjeev Gupta and Lex Greensill's eyes, this was a way of creating money against what they thought was going to be a sale at some point in the future. I mean, it is really staggering the scale of this. The business that they bought, Sanjeev Gupta bought from ArcelorMittal, this collection of tired steelworks in Eastern Europe. He raised more than 2 billion euros from prospective receivables. Just think about that. 2 billion euros against steel, which is still iron ore and coal in the ground. And that was unsecured? The security would have been provided via insurance, but the question is, did the insurers know what they were insuring? It looks, to all intents and purposes, that it was unsecured lending. In effect, it's a loan against something you may or may not sell in the future. And then you have to ask, did everybody in that chain, did the investors who put money into Greensill's supply chain finance fund, did they know that they were lending against steel which might or might not be sold in three years' time? I find that staggering, and I also question how much they knew about that, and I suspect not very much. But there's a question, why didn't they know? Do they say they didn't know, or have they not commented? It is pretty unclear, and it's all caught up in legal arguments right now between the likes of, say, Credit Suisse, which was a very big investor, big lender to Lex Greensill. The extent of their knowledge is going to come clear over the weeks and months ahead. But I suspect a lot of people entered into these deals either naively or blindly. Now, how did this arrangement then, which they've had going on for some time, how did that bring Greensill down? What actually went wrong, finally? The whole story started to unravel earlier this year Later this week, we'll hear how. 
You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Sunday Times Deputy Business Editor, John Collingridge. You can find all of John's reportings on Sanjeev Gupta at thetimes.co.uk or in print on Sundays. The producer was Edward Drummond, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Vulcan Kiseltug. If you've got a story you think we should be covering, possibly an idea for a future episode, or just thoughts on what you've heard, send us an email to storiesofourtimes at thetimes.co.uk. See you tomorrow. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. (laughs) Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like... You know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. <laughs> this was like wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, <laughs> yeah, you, you were different. Like, you were real different, bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout Season 2, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.